If you will, bow your heads with me. Dear God, we come to you now at the appointed time. And dear God, we just ask that you speak directly to us and just allow us to hear your word for what it, for what it is, dear Lord. Speak to our hearts, our minds, our souls, dear Lord, and allow us to, uh, to have the, uh, the ability to truly grasp the meaning this morning. And then, dear Lord, give us the uh, endurance, the confidence, strength, and courage to go out and live it as you live through us and as we become people of impact. Even in a time of isolation, dear Lord, we still are called to be people of impact. And uh, we just lift up everything that we do here today. ask that it pleases you, for it's in Christ's name. We pray these things. Amen. Amen. This morning, I'm going um, to talk to you about the uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is uh, Jesus Christ um, in what we call Palm Sunday. And uh, it is a wonderful time of the year. It's the beginning of the Holy Week, as I said earlier. And uh, it's, uh, it's kind of amazing how um, from Sunday to Friday, the turn of events and the, the opinions of the masses and how they are able to be whooped up and, uh, and they are, um, what their perspectives are, what their visions are and some of the decisions that are made there. It's just, just kind of amazing as you follow that story throughout that week. Um, I'm going to be coming to you out of Matthew 21, the first 11 verses this morning. And this is, uh, this is a, a, just a, an amazing scene that happens. So I want to make sure that we get the historical proper context about what we're talking about here um, to make sure that when we insert the story that we are capable of, of at the end of it, we truly get the meaning and we, we are able to discern what is meant for us here this morning. And this takes place in Jerusalem. And this is the, um, this is in Jesus, his, his exclamation point of his ministry happens right here at the time of the Passover. And so this is the time of the Passover. This is a uh, destination for for the, the Jews, and, and they do an annual pilgrimage down to uh, Jerusalem, where the, the Temple Mount, the big temple is. And usually this is a, a city of about 25,000 people. And then during the Passover time, it swells up to about 150,000 people. So it is just jam-packed. It is just jam-packed. Um, these, um, the, the, peop- the Jewish people have come in. And they are, uh, and we see in in the Bible where Jesus and his family took this pilgrimage. Struggle with that word to pray for me. All right. So this is one. Um, the the Passover is, is a historical event, and yet at the same time, it is a nationalistic event for the Jewish people. And you got to understand that throughout the Jewish history, they have been telling stories. Moses went down. He went down into Egypt. And to the people, his, the Jewish people that were, uh, um, that were in slavery there. And how the Lord God came. And how the blood, the lamb, was put over the, the blood of the lamb was put over the doorway. And the death angel that was sent by God into Egypt passed over the homes that had the blood. And uh, how that was what may eventually made, you know, the uh, Egyptian ruler Pharaoh... He said, let, you know, you can, you, can let, you can have your people leave here. Don't ever come back. And we see how they are 
headed towards the promised land, how God has delivered them. And they are headed toward the, the promised land, led by the very cloud. And, and we get to the Red Sea, and it looks like the, the trip is about to end, and you have the Egyptian army coming in because Pharaoh has changed his mind. And then God spreads the Red Sea. They walk across on dry ground. As the Egyptian soldiers get in the middle, it swallows them up. So these stories are told, and they're told because currently they are imprisoned I will use that term, imprisoned um, culturally by the Roman government. They are dictated by the Roman government. They have been oppressed by the Roman government, they feel. And they now tell these stories, and they are now stories of hope because of what happened in the past. They have historical evidence of what happened in the past, but now they have a they have a, a story of hope that they are passing down through the generations that God ir- re- Regardless of the circumstances here, God will come in. He will deliver them. He will deliver them from the oppressors. Regardless of the the military might and the political power of the oppressor and of the government that has them, God will come in and he will deliver them. And so this is where the people are coming in. And there's a very strong nationalistic vein that is flowing through these people that are coming in. And you got to understand that they are being watched by the Romans and uh, they feel like they are being oppressed. And it's kind of it's starting to kind of starting to cook a little bit in here. And you got all of these people that are swelling and it's becoming a mass. And there's a lot of people hard to control the amount of people that are there. All right. And then we have to plug in the Romans and the 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 local power. There is Pontius Pilate, as you know, through the stories of Jesus in the in the crucifixion. He is the prefect of the, pro- of the um, province of Judea, okay? He serves the empress, or the emperor Tiberius. And this is the stepson of who is known as to us as Augustus, whose original name was Octavian, all right? And that Augustus, now listen with me, this is very important. The title here is very, very critical to the story, okay? So Augustus was a title given to Octavian, because his father, Julius Caesar, was declared to be divine. So Julius Caesar was actually declared to be a god. And now we have Augustus, who is the son of God to the Roman people. And now this is Tiberius, who is the son, the stepson of Augustus. And he is given this title, Augustus, as well. And now we have a Roman government who is oppressing people, who has conquered literally the world, and they are coming in, and they are hurting up the Jewish people, and they are allowing them to exercise their, their, their religious rights in some way, as long as they don't get out of hand, okay? As long as they don't step over, as long as they pay their taxes, as long as they do exactly as the Roman government says, they will allow them to worship in the Jewish manner that they deem appropriate, And then we have this situation here where they are telling these stories and they're coming together in this huge amount of people. They're coming together at this one place and they are telling these stories about how they are going to be freed by God himself. And yet at the very same time, you have a Roman government led by a guy who has declared himself to be the son of God. All right. So it's just a juggernaut getting ready to happen. And the pressure is cooking and all these people are coming together. And then... You have Pilate, who's not really there all the time. He comes and he brings additional soldiers and armies with him to handle the, all, the, all that's happening here. All right, And I need you to understand that he comes in from the west. 
So Pilate is entering from the west. That's important here. All right. And then we have the Jewish leader, Herod Antipas, or the um, Antipater, Herod the Antipater. And he is um, head of Galilee and um, Perea. And he has a brother, and there's been some, some strife there. And they are known as a tetrarch. All right. So his brother is known as a tetrarch. Or I'm, let me back up here. Okay. So Herod is known as a tetrarch, who is not technically a king. He is just governing over um, a group of people. And then his brother has been given some land over here, and uh, he's referred to um, also as uh, someone who is just taking care of an ethnic group. All right. So they're not kings. They have an empire, but they're not kings. They have an empire that they want to rule, and they can, as long as the king, the, Rome, the Roman Empire, the, you know, Augustus or Tiberius, allows him to do what he wants to do as long as he's okay with it. Do you see what's happening there? So we have all this stuff, all this stuff into one place, and they're all shoved in there, and the pressure is cooking, the pressure is cooking, and then you insert Jesus Christ. The great disruptor. The one sent to turn the world upside down. We have this world here, this local world, that is just filled full of pressure. And everybody's got different ideas, and everybody's got different solutions. everybody got different hopes. Everybody's betting on a different line here. And they're all shoved into this one little place. And Jesus Christ is going to come in. And he's going to change the world forever. Matthew 21 says, Now when they, Jesus and his disciples, drew near Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he told them, Go into the village, which is opposite of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Okay, so untie the donkey and the colt, bring them to me. And if anyone stops you or has anything to say about it, you tell them the Lord has need of these, the Lord Jesus has need of these, and immediately he will send them. All right, so we have Jesus Christ who is approaching Jerusalem and he sends off two disciples to find a donkey, all right? And uh, he is going to enter the city on a donkey, not on a great big stallion or not on a chariot, which a lot of conquering or self-described kings would do, but he is going to enter on a donkey, And you may ask yourself, well, why would he enter on a donkey? And verse 4 and 5 tells us that when all this was done, it is because it is fulfillment of the scripture found in Zechariah 9.9 that says, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humbly, lowly, sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, he is coming in a different kind of manner. He's not coming as the Romans are coming in to oppress and to conquer anyone. He's not coming in as Herod is, who's fighting with his actual brother over land and and trying to to decide, how can I declare myself a king even though the actual emperor won't let me be a king? And then you you don't have him coming in as an emperor who is trying to declare himself and give himself a title which doesn't fit him. But you have the true king of kings coming in on a donkey making a statement that this is going to be a kingdom built on humility, built on service and grace. 
built on all the things that the great empires of this world that have come and gone have shunned off as weak. You see the greatest act of strength where you have a king entering the city on a donkey making the statement that if you want to be great in this world, you first have to be last because he's about to go to the cross. And it says there that so the disciples went and they did exactly as Jesus commanded them. And they brought the donkey and they laid their clothes on it and they got him up on the on the donkey. And uh, there was a great amount of people, as we have already discussed, that city was jam packed full of people. And they already have these stories in their head about God will take them, take the oppressors away. He will free them. He will give them back all their uh, rights. He will give them back their uh, temple. They will be able to rule as they once did back in the days of David. And they will be able to to just take this over and they will run the oppressors out of their land. And it's a great nationalistic idea that is flowing through them. And then you have this guy riding in as a king, but he's riding in on a donkey. And it says there that a very great multitude began to spread their clothes on the road so that when Jesus passed by on the donkey... The donkey trampled on top of their clothes. And then others were cutting down palm branches from trees and was setting and spreading them on the ground as if Jesus is walking in as a conquering king. All right. And then you have the multitude who went before and those who followed and they're crying out Hosanna to the son of David. Now, what does Hosanna mean? Hosanna means help, deliver, save us. The people are screaming to Jesus Christ to save them because he is truly the son of David. Now, that's an important thing that's happening there is that they are declaring him to be the son of David. And we've talked a lot about lineage here this morning. But this is proof that the covenant that that God made with David that said, you will have a son that will sit on the throne forever. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of. Of that covenant, that promise made with David, because Jesus Christ is still sitting on the throne this morning. And it's not an earthly throne. It's not one that was conquered by blood and might, but it's one that was conquered as he rode into a donkey on the way to the cross to give his life up for each and every one of us. And it says that they come in singing, Hosanna to the highest in the name of the Lord. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, and they were asking themselves, Who is this? And the multitudes were telling each other, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. It is, it is an amazing story. Here you have all the Jews that have just congregated into Jerusalem, and they are accepting and declaring Jesus Christ, the king, inside of where they are being watched by their oppressors, by their conquerors. And they are feeling a nationalistic revival in their blood about this is it. This is, the, this is time when God is going to deliver us from the oppressors. But here's a couple of questions that we need to ask ourselves this morning. Because Jesus Christ was walking down, or on the, the donkey was walking down with Jesus Christ on it as he entered into the city. And then here's what we have to, to ask ourselves. Because it says there that they were answering that this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. So they were answering who he was. They were declaring who he was. But you have to ask yourself, do they really identify who Jesus Christ is? And let's ask ourselves a a couple questions this morning, okay? Do we really see Jesus Christ for who he is in our lives? 
especially in times of oppression, especially in times of trouble and heartache, trials and tribulations, are we really capable of looking at Jesus Christ and seeing him for who he truly is? Because let's just be honest with ourselves, and it's easy for us to pick on the characters in the Bible. This crowd, the multitude, they did not truly see Jesus for who he was. In fact, it says there, if you go to the... To the the, the um, book of Luke, when he tells this story, it says that Jesus weeps. And he says, now as he drew near, he saw the city in their reaction to him. Because they wanted a king, they wanted an earthly king that was built with might and power and armies and swords and blood and conquering and, and revenge. That's what, they had, that's what they had been praying for. That's what they had in their mind. And when Jesus saw the reaction of the crowd, he began to weep over the city. And this is just a startling, just a startling scripture. It says, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon when your enemies will build an embarkment around you, surround you, close in on you. And every side, they will level you, you and your children to the ground, and they, will, and they will not leave you one stone upon another to protect yourself because you did not know, you were not capable of realizing, you did not have discernment, proper discernment, you were not capable of seeing who Jesus Christ was in your time of visitation. At the, at the most holy time in the history of, of the world when Jesus Christ is walking into the city, to prepare himself for crucifixion. The people did not see him who he was. So let's ask ourselves this morning. Do you see Jesus Christ for who he is? This is a, this is a, this is a very strange time in history. This will be a time when people will talk about it. You know, there'll be arguments about who did what. Is this done properly? Was that done properly? And you know what? Yeah, we've all reacted. It's okay. We, we have emotions put into us by God himself. And would he cheat us the, the very emotions that he put into us and created us with? But we can't let the emotions be our drivers. We can't let the things that rile us up, that cause us to react in certain ways, we can't let that be our compass in life, our true north. Because we have to be led, we have to have different kind of eyes. We have to see Jesus Christ for who he is. And in a time of isolation, and in a time of, you know, large amounts of death and sickness and anxiety... I'm telling you, we need, we need some people of prayer. We need some people of grace and mercy and of love. We need to be people who can look at Jesus Christ and say, I'm ready to accept you on my terms. See, that's, that's the rub. That's the problem. When Jesus Christ comes to us, he's asking us to actually die and pick up his cross. And carry it. He's calling us to his calling. 
And so many times we come to God with our list and say, I need this, this, and this. I got a busy week. Get it done by Thursday. Amen. And that's not what he, that's not how he operates. And so many other times he comes to us and he says, I, I need you to do this. And we say, that's not what I'm for. I don't like doing that. Or, that's, not with, that's not the thing I do. And then we say, here's what I could do better. So this is how I'm going to serve you. And that's not who we're asked to be. We're asked to be true disciples. And when Jesus Christ comes to us, we need to recognize him for who he is and accept him for who he is. Not say, hey, this is who I am, accept me if you want to be my savior. If you want to die on the cross for me, you got to accept me. You, you see what I'm saying there? I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek there. But that's the, that's the message is that here this king, the king of kings, the prince of princes, the, the creator of the world is walking through this middle of the city and they don't recognize him. They think they do, but they don't because it's all in their terms. And he is a righteous king. Psalm 72 says he will judge your people with righteousness. You're poor with justice. He will bring justice to the poor of the people will save the children of the needy. He will break in pieces the oppressor. In his days, the righteous shall flourish in the abundance of peace until the moon is no more. That is the kind of Savior that he is. A Savior of there to help with the poor. Yeah, he'll, he, he will save us from the oppressor, but it will be on his terms, not on ours. And then lastly... Sometimes we look at Jesus and we're not capable of understanding what he's actually doing for us in our lives. And here's what I need you to realize is that after he arises, he's walking to the road, uh, the road to Emmaus with the two disciples. And they are walking side by side with the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, who has gone to the cross to redeem them, to redeem them from death. From the greatest fear that ever exists on this earth, death. The, fina- the, the very final thing of this life is death. In this life, it's death. That's it. That's the end of it, death. Unless you're called in the rapture, all right? But here he has saved them. He has redeemed them. He has released the sin from them, clothed them in righteousness, and allowed them to walk into heaven. And it says that, The disciples are telling Jesus Christ as they're walking with him the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all of the people um, and the chief priests and the rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. We had great hopes. We had great hopes because he came into the city like he was going to conquer it. We thought we were going to get a kingdom. We thought we were going to get rid of the Romans finally. We thought he was going to redeem Israel. And I'm telling you, he redeemed not only Israel, he redeemed all of mankind, the entire world, through Israel. That was his people who he chose to come through. But they are standing beside the great 
Redeemer, and they are talking about, in past tense, how they thought that Jesus Christ was going to come to redeem them. He has already redeemed them. And sometimes when we're standing beside Jesus Christ, he is doing great work in our lives, and because of our preconceived ideas, our own motives, our own agenda, our pride, and the things that we want done in our lives, we're incapable of looking at Jesus Christ and realizing that he's already delivered us from all the anxiety of this life. He's, re- the, he's delivered us from death, from sin. It's done. It is finished. But they're incapable of seeing it because of what's going on up here. Ask yourself this morning, are we capable of identifying the things that Jesus Christ is doing on our lives? Because sometimes we talk to him, sometimes we pray to him, and he's already handled it. He just did it his way. We got to accept it because it's better. Trust me. It's better when we accept it his way. So a lot's going to happen this week as you read the, the, the story of Jesus. But here's the thing where they wanted to hand him the world. They wanted to hand him a kingdom. They wanted to have him hand him power. But you know what? He didn't want to limit himself because he had all power under heaven and earth. And he was relinquishing those rights, brushing off that power so he could humble himself to die, to be the greatest servant, the great perfect sacrifice for each and every one of us. Do we identify Jesus for who he is? And can we identify the things that he's doing in our lives? Dear God, we come to you now, and we're just so thankful for your blessings, dear Lord. We understand that sometimes we aren't capable of seeing what you're doing in our lives, and sometimes we get in our own ways. We are our own worst enemy. And dear God, we are just so thankful that even in our times of sin, even in our times of disappointment, even when we can't get past ourselves, you are still the Redeemer. You are still the King of Kings. Even when we can't see it, even when it doesn't make sense to us, you are still the King of Kings. You are still the Redeemer. Allow us to be people driven by you, filled with your Holy Spirit. Allow us to be the type of people that respond in love, that respond in grace and mercy, not in weakness, dear Lord, not in weakness, but in a Christ-like way. And dear Lord, we just ask that if there's someone watching here this morning that is at a rough stage, just be with them, dear Lord. Allow them to come to you and pray, and you will take the burdens. You will bear their burdens for them. And dear Lord, if there's someone who has never met you as their Savior, dear Lord, we just ask that you speak to them today and they can reach out to us and we can help explain it and make sure that all things are done appropriately. And dear God, we just ask that they make the best decision that they can ever make, and that is to invite you as their Savior. And we do all this in Christ's name.